Well, again, my name is Marshall, and I'll be teaching on the passage that Kim just read. Um, I'm struck by the fact that the last word in that scripture reading, and I do encourage you to keep your Bibles open, the last word in that passage is peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'll comment on that in a minute. Peace is not just a peaceful feeling like the eagle saying. It's not just the cessation of hostilities. It is universal flourishing in every dimension. And uh, that peace is violated in so many ways around our world, around our city with the violence. And of course, yesterday, uh, what appears to be the start of a new war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza that will undoubtedly impact uh, events around the world in the Middle East, Ukraine, everything. And so, uh, again, we're reminded that we live in a world without peace. So let me pray before we look at this text. Our great God, even as the uh, news banners from yesterday remind us, our world is without peace. And we are divided among ourselves. We are divided within ourselves. And Lord, we are divided from you. And so we pray that in this time of worship, you would use it to restore us, renew us, bring us peace with our neighbor, peace with ourselves. But above all, Lord, I pray that we would live into what your son told this woman, that we would have the peace that you offer with yourself, even the forgiveness of sins. Be with us now as we come to this beautiful text. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of a sermon series uh, that we are calling Jesus Unexpected. Jesus Unexpected, the Gospel of Luke. And the reason that we've wanted to do this sermon series is because there's so many superficial understandings of Jesus. I have them, you have them. And we've wanted to look at Jesus with fresh eyes and to experience Jesus as the unexpected person that he presents himself to us in the Gospels. And one way, and I thought about doing a whole sermon series on this, uh, making a little mini-series, one way to look at Jesus with fresh eyes is to look at the way that Jesus eats. You heard that right. The meals of Jesus tell us so much about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because if in all the Gospels, and maybe especially in the Gospel of Luke, which we're looking at this fall, Jesus seems to either be on his way to a meal, at a meal, leaving a meal, or talking about a meal. He's always eating and talking about eating with people. And so we're going to do this little mini-series, Meals with Jesus, for several weeks here. And I think the reason Jesus chooses meals, because meals tell you a lot about a person. Uh, what you eat says about you. You know, if you shop at Aldi or Whole Foods, right? You know, uh, Ruth's Chris or McDonald's, okay? But even more than what you eat, perhaps how you eat and with whom you eat says a lot about you. One of the first big dust-ups in the New Testament comes between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul rebukes the Apostle Peter because the Apostle Peter had ceased to eat with certain types of people. Peter was a Jew and he stopped eating with non-Jewish people, with Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul calls him out. I mean, it's one of the first big dust-ups in all of the New Testament uh, is about who people eat with. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Peter, if you're not eating with certain folks, if you're holding back and not eating with certain folks, you don't believe the gospel of grace. You don't believe what you're preaching. The way that Tim Chester, an English preacher, says it is this. It is possible to articulate an orthodox theology of justification by faith, salvation, but communicate through your meals a doctrine of justification by works. And so this meal, Luke 7, this text, it teaches us something deep about the gospel 
of grace. Now, if you're not familiar, if you're new to our church, the word gospel we use a lot, it is the word, it's simply, the, the easiest way to summarize gospel is it literally means good news. One way we define the gospel in our church is a quote from a, of a, a pastor who's no longer uh, living, a guy named Jack Miller, who says, uh, the gospel is that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine and more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. The gospel. And this is a deep gospel story. I'm actually curious uh, how many of you were here for this. Nine and a half years ago, a little bit more or so, uh, I was candidating to be the pastor of this church nine and a half years ago. And those are weird sermons uh, for at least, being a pastor is just weird generally. But uh, when you're preaching a candidating sermon, it's literally people vote on you and they vote on the sermon. Think about that. Like I get up here, I preach a sermon about grace and then you vote on me. Like I'm not sure how Christian that is, but nonetheless, um, Whatever. Uh, in my case, interestingly, 96 people voted that day. Have, raise your hand if you were here that day. It would have been January 2014. Yeah, not many. It's turned over a lot since then and, and grown and turned over a lot. But when you're doing that, you choose the sermon and the text pretty carefully. You choose it pretty carefully. And I chose this text. I chose this text nine and a half years ago because I cannot think of a text in all of the Bible that better summarizes the gospel of grace and even my hopes for our church then and now than this passage. It is a summary in so many ways of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you get this story, if you, if you can get any story, if you can just get this story deep in your bones, you are going to get the gospel of Jesus Christ in deep and profound ways. Now you might be wondering, are you going to preach the same sermon you preached nine and a half years ago? The answer is no. For two reasons. One, whenever I recycle or reheat a sermon, uh, they're never very good. So says my wife, and she's right. <laughs> but also, uh, in studying this week, I came across sermon notes I had taken from a pastor in Florida, a guy named Ray Cortez, and I really like how he approached it. In many ways, uh, this sermon is, uh, is a reflection, a riff, a homage to uh, Ray Cortez and his thinking on this passage. So, Luke 7, 36 the 50. Before we dive in, let me set the scene a little bit. This is a little bit of an odd dinner party, okay? They are in a Galilean home. That's the north of Israel. If, you think, if you've been looking at maps of Israel in the last 24 hours, that's Gaza is south. This is north, the other end of Israel. Um, and he's a Galilean home in, uh, not far from his hometown of Nazareth. It's after a Sabbath service. Jesus has preached in the synagogue, the church that day. And they come to this guy's home. He's invited to this guy's home. And it's like an open home. It's more like a courtyard. It's not, it's not your dining room. It's more your back porch, your courtyard, a front porch, really. And because it was a courtyard, many guests would have sat around a U-shaped table. You would have been seated according to your social status. It would have been all men, most likely. You would have been propped up on a pillow, and you would have sat on your left elbow, eaten with your right hand, and your feet would have been away from the table. Because it was a courtyard and the door was open, it would have like a symposium environment. People would kind of wander into the courtyard and wander out. It was not uncommon for that to happen and sit behind the people who were at the table. Jesus was uh, the supposed guest of honor. It was considered meritorious, it was considered a good work to invite the preacher to lunch. Just saying. I mean, I, I'm just, it's what the commentator said. But upon the guest arrival, upon the guest arrival, the expectation of the host is they would have provided food, uh, water uh, to wash the feet of the guest. You would have kissed the person on the hand or the cheek to greet them. And in extraordinary cases, exceptional cases, you would actually would have anointed their head with oil. It's kind of the Western equivalent of shaking someone's hand, taking their coat, inviting them in, giving them a seat, offering them something to drink. 
The host this day was a Pharisee, a religious leader. Verse 40 tells us his name was Simon. This is not the same Simon as last week, different Simon. And a Pharisee, just to remind you or to tell you, a Pharisee was a religious person who was committed to purity. They, they were, they'd been you know, uh, uh, taken over by the Romans, as it were. And Pharisees were people who were trying to hold on to pure Judaism. Uh, Pharisees loved the temple. They loved the synagogue. They loved the Torah. They loved God's law. And because they were trying to hold on to that purity, they considered their dinner table like a little temple, a place to hold on to that purity, to stand against the tide. Now, it's super important. If you're going to understand this text, you need to understand that this man, Simon the Pharisee, was a seeker. By this point in Jesus' ministry, many of the Pharisees had started to move away from Jesus. Some of them were probably even plotting already to eliminate Jesus. But Simon is seeking Jesus at some level. Now, of course, there's these breaches we'll talk about in a moment and his misunderstanding. But Simon is interested in Jesus. This is not just the story of this woman and her extravagance. This is also the story of Simon, this religious leader. More on that in a moment. Because on this day, Simon invites Jesus to his home for a meal. Uh, this would probably have been a normal, boring lunch, frankly, uh, with the preacher until something very unexpected happens. Look with me. I'll read the verses again because they're so shocking. Verses 37 and 38. They're at lunch. The preacher's there. Jesus. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when it says she was a woman of the city who was a sinner, I mean, people disagree. I think that she was probably a prostitute. We don't really know. She was, if she wasn't a prostitute, she was an immoral person. She was an adulterer. She was someone who had broken up marriages. Whatever she was, she was known as immoral and unclean. She had done things a good Jewish girl was not supposed to do. And what she does to Jesus, though, is extravagant. It's shocking. It's unsettling. And I think it teaches us something because this woman... This woman gets the good news of Jesus. She gets the gospel, and she gets it deep. So the first thing I want us to see is when you get the gospel, when you get the gospel, you start to see yourself clearly. Now, we don't know why she's crying when she comes in. Maybe it's some combination of joy at seeing Jesus. Maybe it's sorrow at her sin. I think that's probably pretty likely. There may even be some anger in her tears because she sees the way that Jesus hasn't been fully welcomed into this house. But we know from Jesus' teaching that she definitely had a need. She was a sinner. Verse 47, Jesus says clearly, her sins are many. And this woman sees herself clearly. And because she does, she throws herself at Jesus' feet. She is honest about herself. She is honest about her shortcomings. Now contrast this woman and her seeing herself clearly with Simon. Let's just read verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, speaking of Jesus, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. What is Simon doing? He is othering her. He is making her other. He is making her less than. He does not see himself as a sinner at all. He does not see himself as broken. 
He doesn't see himself clearly. So in verses 41 and 42, and again, Jesus is appealing to Simon. He tells Simon a story. It's a parable. It's about two people who owe a debt, one larger debt, one smaller debt. But both are a debt, and this is important to see, that they could not pay. Both debts are unpayable. Jesus, but both debts are forgiven. The main point is not the different size of the debt. The main point is that the debts are unpayable. The woman sees herself clearly. She sees her debt, her sin, her brokenness. She knows she cannot pay. And she knows it has been paid by Jesus. But Simon, he seems to think he has a manageable debt. That if he can just get a little bit better. Maybe Jesus can help him on his self-improvement project. He does not see himself clearly. How clearly do you see yourself? Just, you know, this is free of charge. No one sees themselves clearly. No one sees themselves utterly clearly. But when you are getting the gospel, you see yourself more and more clearly. Our confession of sin this morning from the Book of Common Prayer, that we have sinned in thought, in word, in deed. The more you get the gospel, you realize how deep the disease is. Deeper than any of us realize. So when you're getting the gospel, you see yourself clearly. That's point one. But it's not a problem. Because second, when you are getting the gospel, you know your sins are forgiven and that Jesus sees you and accepts you for you. He sees you, he accepts you, he forgives you for you. Look with me real quick at the end of the story. Verse 48, Jesus makes clear what is true. Your sins are forgiven. That's already happened, but he's declaring what's already true. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 48, and then verse 50, your faith has saved you. He says to this woman, go in peace. It's super important to note, if you're going to understand this passage, you have to understand this point. The forgiveness of her sins is prior to her extravagant display of love. Very important. The forgiveness of sins is prior to her worship and her love. Her display of love, all these things she does, that follows her forgiveness. I mean, if you look at the story that Jesus tells about the two debtors, the debtors are forgiven, then they love. She loves because she has been forgiven. She has heard something. Maybe it's in the sermon that morning from Jesus. She's, she's heard and she's understand that she is forgiven. And her display of love is proof, a result of her forgiveness. It's not her love that earns her forgiveness. It's her forgiveness that propels her to love. You see, she can make this display because she knows that she is forgiven. She knows that Jesus has seen her for who she is and still accepted her. Now, I want you to imagine what it would be like for this woman 2,000 years ago in a small town. Just put yourself in her shoes for just one moment. How people would see her as she walked around town. Undoubtedly, she got cutting glances from other women. She probably got shameful smirks from some of her customers who remembered what happened the night before but were now with their wife. She undoubtedly would have gotten lusty looks from men who simply objectified her with their looks. And then from the religious crowd, she would have gotten derision, judgment, even ignoring her. But Jesus, he sees her for who she is. And accepts her. It's not just that she sees herself clearly. When you get the gospel, you realize that Jesus sees you. (laughs) Do you know that you're seen? Do you know that you're loved? That Jesus sees you in the darkness. And he does not turn away. Jesus sees you and he doesn't shake his head. Jesus sees you and he he doesn't give the impression that you're not enough. 
Jesus sees you for who you are. You are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. You see, when you get the gospel, you see yourself clearly, but you also, and more importantly, you see that you are accepted and loved in Christ. The third thing, when you get the gospel, you most impulsively, reactively make extravagant displays of love. You make extravagant displays of love when you get the gospel. Let me go through verses 37 and 38 slowly. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to retell what happens here. Verses 37. She comes in. She falls on her knees. She's weeping. She's weeping so much that her tears pour down her face onto Jesus' feet. She's concerned about this, so she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet. And as she does so, she begins to kiss his feet. And then the cumulative act of devotion and worship, the height of extravagance, is when she anoints his feet and massages them with the perfume from this alabaster flask. This was beyond expectation. It was uncommon to anoint somebody's head with oil. But to anoint his feet, to massage his feet with perfume. Now this was a culture without deodorant. Uh, if you've ever been to the developing world and you've smelled the smell of poverty, you know how it is. It smells bad. But this woman was in a line of work where her trade was to bring pleasure to men. To have them forget the world for a mile, while in a moment of pleasantness. So smelling good was important. So as a prostitute, she would have this flask hanging around her neck between her breasts. To quote uh, one of the commentators, to sweeten the breath and perfume the person. Now an alabaster flask like this with this ointment was very expensive. It, was her, it would have been her prized possession. And how did she pay for it? Where did she get the money to pay for it? With her activity, with her economic activity, with prostitution, which is to say it had been purchased with dirty money. And she's bringing this flask purchased with dirty money, and she's offering it and its contents to Jesus. All this woman has in the world is her body. And she's giving it to Jesus, pouring it out. And what does Jesus do? He accepts it. He accepts it. He accepts this flask, this thing that's been gained by illicit activity. He accepts it and praises it as an act of worship. I mean, think about it. This thing was, it was bought with dirty money. It was used in dirty things. And Jesus says, yes, I accept it as worship and as praise. Why? Because, friends, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. It is the economy of the gospel. And when you get the gospel, you make these extravagant displays. So let me say to you, God can use you. He can use your past. He can use your brokenness. He can use your life story. Maybe it's some addiction that you're currently facing. Maybe it's a DUI. Maybe it's you cheated in business or on a test. Maybe you cheated on your taxes. Maybe there's a divorce you regret. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe you hit your spouse. Maybe you've been too harsh with your children, with your spouse. Maybe you have a bitter, critical spirit that's driven people from you. Maybe you are like the religious person, Simon, and you are judgmental. Whatever it is, God can take it and make it beautiful, an extravagant instrument of worship. Because, friends, when you get the gospel, when you get the gospel, you come to Jesus with your whole self, your whole story, your whole past. And you make that whole story an extravagant gift of love. 
Because when you get the gospel, you'll be extravagantly generous with your story. You'll tell your story. You'll be extravagantly generous with your worship, with your time, with your money. Where in your life are you extravagant? Where in your life are you extravagant with worship, time, money, story? I'm an Alabama football fan. And yesterday, Alabama had a close and important game. And I looked and acted the fool. Uh, I had a jersey on, a grown man, 50 years old, with a jersey on. Had my son wearing a jersey. And when we made a big play, I exploded with praise. Small W worship. If there had been a fan cam in my house, you know, they, when they, you know, folks in on the fans, uh, and I show, you would laugh at me. I'm like, this is a grown man. It didn't even go to this, I didn't even go to that school. What if there was a worship cam? What were there, and it caught you, either personally or in corporate worship, worshiping. What would it look like? Would it show extravagance? And I'm not talking about raising your hands. I'm talking about your heart. Would it show extravagance in your heart for the God who has saved you? What about, what about when it comes to our money, extravagance with our money? I have a good friend. I love this story. I have a good friend who was audited by the IRS. This guy does not make much money. He was audited by the IRS. He was audited because the IRS did not believe how much money he gave away based on how little he made. They didn't believe him. They're like, no way you give away that much money based on how little you make. And you ask him, why do you give so much? He's like, I love to give. I've been forgiven. I'm extravagant. I love to give. When you get the gospel, there are extravagant displays of love. Fourth thing, when you get the gospel, you don't care what other people think. You don't care what other people think. Uh, I'm going to be brief here, but this is one of the most visceral moments in the story for me, if you're imagining it like as a movie in front of you, is when she lets down her hair. Is when she lets down her hair. Even today, if you're watching a movie and a woman lets down her hair, one of two things is happening, right? There's even a moment of intimacy coming, or it's the end of the day and she's kind of letting down her guard, and like there's a murderer hiding in the closet, Right? It's an extremely intimate, it's, an extre- it's extremely in- intimate. I mean, the, one of the commentators said it would be akin to exposing herself, exposing her naked self. According to the Jewish Talmud, to let down your hair in public was grounds for divorce. This is why if you see Orthodox Jewish people today, Orthodox Jewish women, what do they have? They have wigs because they will not show their hair in public, even today. She let down her hair because she felt with Je- safe with Jesus. She did not care what other people thought. She didn't care. She let her hair down. You see, friends, as you get the gospel and the gospel gets you, you increase things. Otherwise, you got nothing to prove, you got nothing to gain, and you got nothing to lose. So you can stop caring what other people say because you know you have the ultimate approval of Jesus Himself. And when you know you're accepted and seen and loved, you are free to love other people and free to forget about yourself and not think and care what they think of you. I, for, I almost, like, I, this, could tur- this little parable, this story could be a whole sermon series. So I'm going to, I wish I had more time. I'm, I'm going to combine two things real quick. Fifth and sixth, when you get the gospel, you will have peace and satisfaction. I'm just going to say something briefly about both peace and satisfaction. Verse 50, the last verse I've already alluded to, your faith has saved you. Go, actually, the better translation would be not go in peace, but go into peace. Go into peace. Peace with God. Peace with others. Peace with self. 
As I said at the beginning, it's not necessarily like a peaceful, easy feeling like the eagles sing about. It's not necessarily the cessation of war. Peace is the Old Testament idea of shalom, universal flourishing. Everything is working. And she goes into peace because whatever comes her way, she has a peace that passes understanding. When you get the gospel, there's nothing in this world that can really shake you. You may grieve, you may weep, things may hurt for the night. But you know that you have something that is secure and more secure than anything in this world. Wars may come and go. People may come and go. You may get sick. You may, but there is nothing that can shake the peace that is yours in Christ. But it's not just peace. It's also satisfaction. Both Tim Keller and Ray Tor- Cortez mentioned this. Um, you know, that Freud said, Freud said, Sigmund Freud said that religion, religion was suppressed sexuality. This story teaches that sexuality is repressed religion. You see, this woman, her whole life has been looking for satisfaction. And she's never been satisfied. But now she has found satisfaction. She has found the lover of her soul. She has found the one her heart's long for. And the only one who can ultimately and fully satisfy her. When you get the gospel, you get peace and you get satisfaction. You also, as we've seen, you, get, you see yourself clearly. When you get the gospel, you know you're forgiven and accepted. You don't care what others think. And you make extravagant displays of love and worship. But seventh and finally, when you get the gospel, you see Jesus clearly. This woman gets it. <laughs> she gets the good news of Jesus But hear me say this, I really don't believe this story is about her or for her. I believe this story is for Simon. This story is for Simon. This is almost like, if you know the story of the uh, the prodigal son, uh, it's really about the older brother, okay? This story is not about this woman. She gets it. Who doesn't get it? Simon doesn't get it. This story is for Simon, and it is for you and me. This woman already gets it. Because what Jesus is doing... He's inviting Simon to see what this woman sees. Okay? I love what he says. Do you, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And I ask you, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And to help Simon get into his own story, verses 44 and following, he goes point by pointful, point by pointful, painful point, Simon's failures. Verse 44, you gave me no water. He says to him, verse 44, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, as seen by the fact that she loved much, because she who is forgiven little loves little. I mean, I identify with Simon. I feel like this guy. I mean, he thinks he's a pretty good guy, he thinks he's upright. He's responsible. He cleaned his house and cooked a meal so he could welcome the preacher. He's a pillar in the community. He's faithful. Yeah, he probably knows he has some small sins. He's basically a good guy. But Jesus asks him to look in the mirror and says, Simon, you have many sins. You're prideful. You're arrogant. You're judgmental. You're sexist. You're not hospitable. You're insensitive. And you don't understand God's forgiveness. And maybe most of all, you lack extravagance when it comes to God. And then that key sense, Simon, do you see this woman? 
Do you see this woman? And I have to ask us, church, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Let's think about it corporately for just a second. What does it mean for us as a church to see this woman? Because if and as we see this woman, it will scandalize religious people. It will scandalize moral people. Because more importantly, it will attract sinners. It will attract unkempt people. It will attract people that make us uncomfortable because of what they've done and who they are. Do we, do we see this woman? Our name is Grace. Do we see this woman? But as an individual, do you? Do you see this woman who gets the gospel? Because if you see this woman, if you really see her, you don't just see her. You see beyond her to the gospel of Jesus. Because, you know, this woman did not care what people thought of her. So she threw herself at Jesus. Well, Jesus did not care about others and what they thought of him when he hung naked on a cross. This woman wept for her own sins. Jesus, at the end of his life, wept for your sins and for mine. This woman undid her hair. Jesus himself was undone. Maybe you know the story from the crucifixion that Jesus in the garden, right before he is crucified, he sweat blood, he, he sweat drops of blood. He literally was physically coming apart. She undid her hair. He was undone. And this woman gave her most precious gift, her perfume flask, but Jesus gave his life, his most precious life, the most extravagant of gifts. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Because as you see this woman and as you feel her feelings, you can look beyond her and see the one who has given his precious for you. He sees you. He loves you. He accepts you. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord.